Welcome to Prajna Sparks Contemplation Interlude with Yeshe and Zopa, where we answer your questions and discuss with each other topics from the previous episode. Today, we are looking at the contemplation of death and how it impacts our lives. I'm very excited about these interludes for many reasons, but especially because all of you get to meet Mama Zopa more directly than through his guided meditations, which are, of course, a very good way to meet Lama Zopa. To begin with, I want to thank everyone for the great response to the new format and the many wonderful questions. We've chosen a few questions that came up frequently. Please do go ahead and send us an email at sparks at prajnavira.com or message us on Instagram. Hi, Zopa. Hi, Yeshi. I'm delighted to be here get to give all these wonderful people a glimpse into our Dharma geekdom, how we chat about Dharma. Indeed. I'm going to let you take the lead on this first question. It feels manipulative to use death as explained here. It's like the practice is trying to scare me into action. That's why I no longer follow the religion of my birth. I feel resistance. How would you guide me in this? That's a great question. And it's something I think that comes up a lot for many of us is the sense of resistance, at least. In my experience working with this, in my own practice, my own contemplation of death and what follows after that, there certainly is an aspect of fear or of sorrow that can come up. At least in my opinion, it's not really manipulative. It's more a sense of helping us develop a clearer picture to put things into perspective. I believe that doing the contemplation on death really addresses an underlying insecurity, an underlying fear that we may not allow through into our everyday thoughts, but is nevertheless there, this existential questioning. Mm that we often have, and I think that comes up much more sharply if we're not actively working with facing the fact that we are going to die, and what is meaningful in that. In some ways, yeah, it is encouraging us to act in a way that is wise and skillful and has a broader perspective than just being led around by the nose, by our temporary shifting desires and wants that arise full blossomed and then dissipate in the next instant. It kind of gives us more of a true north, a lodestone for guiding us is really how I I see it. I'd actually love to hear about your own personal experience. How has this affected your life and how has that impacted the way you live day to day? It makes me Well, first off, I just want to say that this is a contemplation that I find I need to continually come back to. And the more that I come back to it, the more I feel like I'm really in line with something that feels meaningful to me, something that feels 
not just true, but conducive to my well-being and to making a good use of my life. So I find that contemplating on my death, contemplating on what comes after, contemplating on what's meaningful in the face of that, what I want to do, really hones my use of my time and my energy. But even more so, paradoxically, it helps me to slow down and enjoy life, appreciate the things that I know I already know I appreciate them, but I often don't take the time to really let myself experience that enjoyment. Mm. I'd say overall that it has a kind of a slowing effect that's quite, it can feel quite poignant. It can feel sorrowful at some times, but it feels meaningful. That's wonderful, because as usual, we're quite different in many ways. I could resonate with some of what you said. For me, the contemplation of death has been very helpful in addressing what I would think of as anticipatory grief. Mm -hmm. The hardest thing for me in contemplating mortality is the recognition that before I die, I will have to experience the passing of people I care about. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't say for sure who those people are who will pass before I die. But it doesn't matter because here and now, I can really feel the pain of losing my mother, my brother, my nephew, you, my close friends. And that in the past has felt really crippling. And I can't imagine what it would be like to encounter the grief of someone dear dying in the grip of that pain. The closest person to me who died was my father when I was fairly young and I didn't have any of this context. And I plummeted into a very dark space. And that didn't help the anticipatory grief at all. Whereas I find that the contemplation of death helps me hold both life and death with more lightness and more joy. Something that allows me to stop moving into denial to avoid the pain of grief, even now, much less when it's sharp and like a thorn in the heart. Mm. I also see in our work with Dharma students the very big difference it makes when people are experiencing grief through a practice that includes contemplation of death and understanding of impermanence as opposed to just being taken by surprise. and Well, and I'm really glad you brought up that aspect, because it feels to me like so often that this contemplation, which is you know one of the contemplations for turning our mind to the Dharma, can feel heavy. It can feel sorrowful. And I think there's an aspect of it, certainly where we're wrestling with that understanding, that existential questioning within ourselves that's already there. So that makes sense. However, part of what I love about it too is there's also a space of lightheartedness, a space of not taking ourselves so seriously, not reifying death even as like this massive surprise or thing that is just a block of darkness when actually life and death are intricately connected 
we can't have one without the other. And it's so interesting, I think, in some ways, the fact of how we celebrate one side of the equation, life or birth, and we push away the other side of the equation, even though they're tied together. You can't have one without the other. The other aspect of dharma and the contemplation on impermanence and mortality that I really value is the sense of lightness, is the sense of it's natural, it's going to happen. And just like that great song says, it's it's like an illusion. When we're actually experiencing it and going through it, it's not what we think it is. And so kind of turning that fear and dread to a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more of an exploration of even death is part of life and part of what gives life its verve, its brilliance, is that it's an exploration, that we get to meet it freshly. That's something that I really value as well. That's lovely. It's a perfect segue to the next question, which is about taking the joy out of living. The questioner feels that this focus on death and what happens after death takes them away from the present moment, takes them out of the joy of life, all for the sake of either the promise of a future reward or avoiding future unpleasantness, which may or may not come. Mm. I can understand that. I think that the contemplation and our resistance, again, to this existential questioning can come up in just that way and feeling like, oh, I'm being told to deny the things that I enjoy in life and repress myself in order to get to something that I may or may not reach, that there's no physical, material, tangible evidence of. But I think that that's really not what this contemplation is about. I mean, there is certainly a sense of making good use of this life in terms of looking at what is meaningful, what does accompany us, what does affect our mind. It's not how much money we make. Even our all of our relationships, which are so important to bring into the Dharma, which is to say to make meaningful, to make loving, to make supportive, but they're also not something that is ultimately going to last. And recognizing that, then it gives us a lighter touch. It helps us tune into, more finely attuned to our own mind and what's happening, our own mind heart. I have, I have to remember to keep saying that because we're so used to the, the Tibetans talking about mind as encompassing, of course, feeling, emotion, thinking, all of these different things. Good for me to remember to say heart as well, because that's something that we in the West often don't correlate. It also gives a sense of appreciation for the moment. Mm. You know, that sense of impermanence, sometimes people will say, well, then what's the, what's the point of all this work I'm putting into my relationships and so forth, if they're only going to end anyway? And it's, it's quite the opposite. Again, there's yes. that dualistic mind trying to put things into neat little spaces. And there aren't any neat spaces. We're talking about life and death. What's neat about these It's things? messy. And there's a continuum that's happening here, as we talked about in the main episode last week, when we have a sense of how much time is slipping through our fingers, how precious what we have day-to-day is, it gives us so much more appreciation, more flavor 
to extract from all of the things of life. And it gives us, as you say, a lighter touch. Things that we normally get outraged about are not that provocative. Our mind is starting to settle into a space that is much more expansive and less a dichotomy of either this or that and nothing else. Yeah. Just listening to you describe that right now, again, brings me back to this kind of more of a image or a sense that I get from this contemplation, which is really just that there's a touchstone that we're all, I feel like we're all seeking for. We're all desperately looking and we're usually looking outwards for, which, you know, which could be described as a sen- looking for a sense of security or meaning or all of these different things. And it's interesting because I think it's almost paradoxical that by really going into this contemplation and engendering this awareness of our own mortality and the sense of a continuum, both in this life and after this life, that there's a touchstone that gives us a sobering yet grounded sense of, oh, this, this makes sense. This is what I want to do. That feels much more resonant than the usual casting about for ways to distract ourselves from the existential dread that's lurking under the surface. I think what you just said is such a big piece because it's not like this contemplation is creating a fear that isn't there. We have that fear. We have that sense of foreboding, but we cover it up and it takes a lot of effort to quash that. This contemplation reveals that sharp concern, that alert, that not just sometime later, but here and now, my life is slipping away, kind of like Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Allowing that into our lives, into our minds, actually becomes a very fertile place of appreciation, of gratitude of making the most of our lives, not in just eat, drink, and be merry kinds of ways, but in ways that are meaningful for us now, for the people who love us, and for the time of our death and beyond, the beings who will share this mind stream, to whom we will pass it on. I'm going to ask you this next question, which is, how would you advise somebody who really doesn't believe in karma, doesn't believe in negative realms, and yet has some draw to this practice? It's a great question, because the Buddha doesn't want us to just take what he says at face value. He famously says not to do that, to examine and investigate for ourselves. But Often when I hear people talk about that, I hear them say, oh, we're supposed to question what the Buddha says. Yes, and we're supposed to question what we say, (laughs) what we think, all of our projections and the cultural accretions we've acquired over the space of a life. It's not just the situation where we're holding tight to our belief system and refusing to consider the possibility that things might be the way the Buddha described. And there's a lot of conjecture about, did the Buddha believe in karma? Did he not believe in karma? Did he believe in rebirth? Was it a cultural thing? There's one thing that nobody disputes, and that's that the Buddha taught in the context of 
karma and rebirth. Of kleshas, which are the emotional impetus for action, which is karma, leading to particular results that can be of any of the different kinds of suffering, either obvious suffering or the shifting suffering of not being able to hold on to goodness or the imperceptible underlying vulnerability of being alive. There's no question that's the context that the Buddha used to teach. And there's nothing in the Buddha's life, nothing in his teachings that would indicate that he would put something out there if he didn't think it was worthwhile. So to me, it doesn't really matter whether the Buddha believed it or not. Personally, I think he did. That's my opinion. And what I find is that this exercise is equally possible irrespective of what our belief system is. We can just go about it from the sense of a working hypothesis for the sake of this practice. What if the Buddha is right? If I knew for a fact that this is the way it is, how would that change my life? Experiment. See what happens. If it turns out that this is a skillful way to engage in your life, what if you have to lose by applying it? And in any case, it's an experiment that you can take up and put down as is appropriate for you. Nobody's forced to do this. But in the end, personally, I feel that engaging the Buddha's teachings as he presented them gives us a connection, a relationship to the Buddha. No matter what we think about the content, which we lose if we just close the door in his face. So beautiful. I totally agree. Opening ourselves up to the teachings on karma and on past and future lives, it helps to invite in the whole spectrum of the teachings without having to do all sorts of mental gymnastics that are simply based, like you were saying, on our habits or cultural accretions, but really helps us to open our minds. So I think it's a great way. Finally, one last one. This person says, I'm facing a life-threatening illness with poor prognosis, which is recently diagnosed. This practice goes right to my heart. What more can I do? First of all, I just want to hold the tenderness of that question and, and also the courage. What more can I do? One poignant thing we can do is alongside the medical treatments that we choose to undergo for any particular illness, is to recognize that those notions that we spoke about in the transcendence episode of the Buddha as a physician, the Dharma as a treatment, ourselves as suffering from the illness of the kleshas, disturbing mind's natural tranquility, and keeping us in this cycle of klesha karma dukkha over and over again, that is called samsara, seeing that we are able to apply not only medical treatment for our body, but to take that urgency, that tenderheartedness, that lack of armor that facing the end of this life brings, to open up into appreciation for the things we have in this life, to connect with those we care about, because naturally the heart goes out to those we love when we imagine their grief and loss of us, and to really 
just be human around it at first, and then to bring in that Dharma component. When we're receptive in this way, which sometimes nothing but the end of life can bring to relief, that's the whole purpose of these contemplations, to arise this mindset, what more can I do? Then we can see things like we can use our immediate experience to try to get a sense of all of these points in the Buddha's teaching, karmic cause and effect. How do I see even this illness, which seems uniformly negative, from a different perspective? What qualities are there in this illness? What can I learn from it? And we might develop greater confidence in karmic causality as a result of that. We may be able to use the closeness of that vulnerability to connect with the countless beings who are also ill using the Tonglin practice that we employed during the 59 days of healing or any number of other practices, purification practices for our own karma or even just allowing the heart to be a wellspring of compassion for those who will feel our loss, for those who are feeling the loss of others, who are in grief, basically to connect with the universal vulnerability of beings. And then from there, we can also, of course, use that sense of urgency that knowing we don't have much time to lose brings. And we can spend our days doing mantras, prayers, if that's an appropriate outlet for you. Basically, allow your clear-eyed, open-hearted engagement with life to open you into Dharma and to receive the balm of the Dharma as medicine as you're doing all the things you need to do to address your physical illness. And then there's many practices at the time of death as well that are very helpful. I'm curious about your experience, Opa, because you've had considerable experience with helping people at the time of death, and that's a major interest for you. So I'm curious about specifically at the time of death, yeah, I think for me, it brings up just immediately that sense of vulnerability of what it's like when we realize that we're not in control, that even though we might have all sorts of plans for the future, these things can evaporate and we don't have to say. And that's such a tender place. And so for me, puts me right into that spot of seeking refuge, of what refuge really means. You know, what we as Buddhists so often do multiple times a day, which is go for refuge to the three jewels. But when we have this vibrant, urgent sense of our own fragility, and the fact that all beings are like us and facing this, everything born dies, that this is going to happen for us all. Right there in the midst of that heartbreak, in the midst of that fragility, there's such amazing opportunity for going for genuine refuge. Just like you said, Yeshe, about the bomb 
that Dharma provides, then we get to really see its quality and its advantage. And I think this is especially true also for people who are dying, that sense of being there on your deathbed, feeling that sense of being there on your deathbed, facing death, facing the unknown, not really knowing what to do. And in that space of desperation sometimes or helplessness, there's this great opportunity to turn towards the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, our teachers, any manifestation of that boundless, limitless joy and compassion and holding of us that also feels heartbreaking, but also feels so welcoming. And the more that we can orient ourselves towards that, I just think it's such, in many ways, it's such a simple practice, but it's so profound. I think that it's a beautiful way to live our lives, to approach our death in a way that gets to that place of genuine fearlessness, of genuine meaning for ourselves and others. This has been Yeshe and Zopa. Tune in on the full moon for the next episode. Check the episode notes for more resources and find us on the web at prajnafire.com. Always feel free to contact us with any questions, comments, or feedback at sparks at prajnafire.com or on Instagram and Facebook at prajnasparks. Thanks for listening and for taking the time to like, follow, and review Prajna Sparks. It really does help us reach more people. May all beings benefit.